Hi, welcome to the Product Momentum Podcast, a podcast about how to use technology to solve challenging technology problems for your organization. Okay, so Sean, we're here today with Jake Sarfman, and he's the Chief Marketing Officer over at Pendo, and that is a tool we are hearing a lot about in the product space of companies starting to use to better serve their users. Super excited to have you here, Jake. We met at the product conference a while back. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Sean. Good to be here. So Jake, if you could just start off, you know, typically how any podcast starts off, introducing yourself, tell us a little bit more about Pendo, what your role is. You bet. Yeah. So my name is Jake Seroffman. I'm a CMO of Pendo. I joined Pendo about 18 months ago. And before that, I spent five years as a Gartner analyst. I was a VP and chief of research of digital marketing and CMO practice at Gartner. And that was a bit of a left turn in my career. I had spent uh, previously about 16 years with venture-backed software companies. So I returned to my roots um, and having a lot of fun doing it. Awesome. So what we wanted to talk to you about today is you've put out Pendo, and you obviously steering it, have put out this state of product leadership survey and really talking about you know product management, product leadership, yep, just everything having to do with it. And so we wanted to talk through what we saw in the results there, but why did you feel it was important or needed to, to kind of put out the survey? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I am a content marketer by philosophy and inclination. And, and what I mean by that is I, I think it's really important to start with what's at stake for the audience you're trying to reach and, and really try to authentically deliver something of value to serve that community. And the community we serve is product management. Product managers use Pendo to better understand their users and to guide their users within their products so we've made a pretty significant investment in uh, premium content in the form of editorial content in our site, productcraft.com, and eBooks and primary research reports like this as a way to deliver something back to the community we serve. Um, and that's really what the spirit is behind State of Product Leadership. This is the second year we've run the survey, and um, we're sampling about 300 product managers in North America. And it's always just very interesting. It tends to feed us all year long as we, we look to tell stories around sort of the data and the findings and the trends that we see in the product management community. And you have to remember, for product management as a role, while it's been around for a long time, it's often been really misunderstood and sort of neglected in some ways. And it's only in the last, say, 10 years that product management has really come into focus as a very strategic part of the business um, of course, this is arguable, but this is my observation, where companies are seeing it as a key lever of growth. And this is our way of trying to better dissect that role and help product managers themselves to more effectively grow their careers and, and execute the functions that they're responsible for. Very cool. So I looked through the 2018 edition, I looked through the 2019 edition, and Got some questions for you here about some of the specific you know, aspects of what changed over time, what was consistent. But just for you personally, what was the biggest surprise you noticed you know, year over year? So last year, I'd say that the narrative was of a role on the rise. Um, product management is sort of fast becoming one of the new it roles. The way I like to frame it is newly minted MBAs used to beat a path to Wall Street or hedge funds or management consulting. And now they want to be product managers at SaaS companies in Silicon Valley. Um, that feels new and different. 
So there's a lot of heat and light being drawn to this discipline and a lot of demand and interest in, in product management. So we saw a lot of signs that this was a role that's taking on more strategic importance, a role that is clearly in demand. Um, that continues in the 2019 edition, but we also see a role that may be somewhat in transition as product managers sort of reconcile the fact that they've been given a lot of responsibility, but in many cases, they simply don't have a ton of authority. It's a discipline where you lead through influence, not formal authority. And that can lead to some degree of frustration. And we saw some of that frustration in the findings uh, in the survey. Got it. That's an interesting comment about Wall Street and kind of those types of jobs wanting to go towards product management. You know, something I hear a lot, my team asks me, they ask, you know, our company in general, and I talk to a lot about with other product managers is, do I need to be technical? Like, how technical do I need to be? Do I need to know how to write code? Do I need to know how the server architecture works? Like, where's the line? What did the survey show in terms of product managers needing or wanting to be technical or not? So last year, this is always a very controversial question. Um, it's fairly polarizing. People take very strong positions for and against this. But last year, we found that the majority of product managers were coming from a non-technical background. By and large, they were coming from you know, an undergraduate or graduate program studying business. Um, they were coming out of marketing as their most recent last job. And this year, we found that more often than not, product managers have a technical degree of some sort. They have studied something uh, more technical, um, either computer science, engineering, or the hard sciences, in less so business, laborats, et cetera. Um, but we also find that their last job was, was in marketing. Um, so that held true year over year, but we are seeing um, a bit more respondents tell us that they have more of a technical background. Now, whether a product manager needs to be technical, if you ask me, I think uh, it really depends. I think they need to be technical enough to have credibility with an engineering team, their core constituency. Um, if they don't have credibility with engineering, they're going to have a really tough time doing their job effectively. But whether they need to be technical beyond that, I think, depends on how technical the product is and how technical the buyer is. To the extent that it's a technical product sold to a technical buyer, I'd argue that um, there's a stronger case for them to be truly technical themselves. They need to understand the domain. Cool. I was super interested to see, I think it was in 2018, this changed. 2018, only 1% of product managers had a design or creative background. But in 2019... It looked like there were a bunch more coming from UX and design. I wasn't sure what to make of that. What do you think about that? Why do you think that occurred? Yeah, go figure. It's an it's an interesting one for sure. The best I can make of that is that, and we see this at Pendo ourselves. We have a, a good size and, and very um, progressive product management team, many of whom came from UX backgrounds, and they moved from design into sort of bona fide product management. Um, but it makes some sense if you think about it, because design is so, so critical to great products these days. Innovation is moving up the stack. Like every layer gets commoditized from infrastructure to platform to the functionality itself. And now the innovation is often found in how that functionality is rendered, how it's made available to users in a way that's simple and inviting and delightful and, and intuitive. I think of it as almost like the Apple effect. 
It's like great product design from companies like Apple or frankly, Uber or Lyft or Amazon or any great companies, consumer companies that have really figured out how to deliver simple and intuitive user experiences are sort of putting the onus on the rest of us to do that much better because our users are arriving to our product with different expectations. And these are expectations that are shaped not by their next best alternative, which is to say other available solutions to that problem, but by their last best experience. And often those experiences are happening in their consumer life. So that's a very long way of saying that I think UX and design are just absolutely critical to how we think about great products today. Sure. No doubt that's, that's rapidly changing in the market. The expectations of consumers are definitely getting more and more demanding around good design, right? Absolutely. The other thing I saw in 2018 was that most companies don't have a dedicated product division or chief product officer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of, the, one of the interesting findings over last year was that chief product officers are on the rise. Last year, I believe something like 6 or 7% of companies reported having a CPO or equivalent as sort of a, you know, the senior most product leader reporting up to the CEO within their organization. And this year, it was um, about three times that. And it seems like, you know, a lot of traditionally marketing has been the reporting line for product management. And still, it is the dominant reporting line for product management. But increasingly, we see product gaining a seat at the table and represented by an executive in the C-suite, which I think makes a lot of sense. And, And frankly, we see it as sort of the marker of a mature product organization is having that seat at the table and that sort of sea level equivalency within the executive team. So, you know, to that end with the CPO reporting directly up into the CEO, do you think that having still such a strong presence within marketing is just because of tradition of, hey, we have digital products, we have software products, they should go to marketing. Like, do you think that's what's causing that? Well, I think marketing in many organizations is owns the voice of the customer and really has a deep understanding of the markets they serve and the need states they're solving for. So I, I do think that there's some wisdom in having product management aligned to marketing, if not reporting to marketing. Um, yeah, it, it makes some sense. I think it's the more progressive variant than having product management roll up to engineering. Because ultimately, product management is is an iterative and, and exploratory process of solving for problems over time. And that requires deep insight into customer need and then deep insight into markets. You don't know the answer until you know the answer. And, that, and getting closer to that insight is what's, what's so critical. I think the reason that having a CPO is, is better still is because it gives product more influence in strategic decision-making within the company. Um, and many companies are recognizing now that product is kind of the new battlefield. Like you can't hide behind a false brand promise. You need to deliver an exceptional product and an exceptional product experience. And without that, you're quickly discovered and and stamped out. So getting it right really, really matters. Yeah. I mean, Sean, we talk about kind of the fourth dimension of competition. You know, you got to be fast, you got to have quality, you know, and you got to have when I was in business school, they taught you there's this thing called the trade-off triangle, right? Uh-huh. Quality, speed, and price. You got to choose two. Can't be all three. Right, exactly. And the reality is the internet and product and consumer expectations because of the internet has changed all of that. Like if you're not high quality, everyone of your customers has a bullhorn called the internet, right? That's exactly right. <laughs> there's nowhere to hide. It's just like almost perfect transparency. We've all got these things in our pockets called smartphones and we can find solutions in a heartbeat. So those are off the table. You have to be high quality. You have to be fast. Are we all racing to zero, as some would argue? 
you know, Starbucks has changed the market and they charge $5 for a cup of coffee. You know, that was unheard of 10, 15 years ago, right? Right. Right. They're not, they're not selling you a cup of coffee. They're selling you an experience. And we all have to come to grips with that fact that we're a product of the experience we produce. That's it. Couldn't agree more. Well said. How everything else adds up to that. They're the quality of our products and services, the speed that we deliver them and the experience that we provide. That's basically how we are able to come to a fair price in the market. My, my opinion. Yeah. And I think it's part of that evolution up the stack where the battlefield has shifted sort of progressed up the stack and it's progressed from, you know, features to the experience that you wrap around those features, both in the design of the product that you're delivering, as well as um, the value-added experience that you provide as an organization. Sometimes that's within your application itself. That's one of the interesting things that we found. And one of the things, frankly, propelling our growth as a company is that there are aspects of sales and marketing and support and training that are moving into the application because the experience itself is increasingly digitally led and self-service. It's not wrapped around the product through other customer touch points, but it's inside the product. And that needs to be enabled in a really elegant way that's aware of who you are as a user and where you are in the journey and what your specific need might be. Yeah, I love the way you phrase that. It's all moving into the product because we're seeing that as well with our clients. They're thinking about how to move all these cross-channel experiences just into the product. Just move it all in there. Totally. Absolutely. 100%. So if I had to pick one part of the survey that I found to be the most interesting, it was that in 2018, the respondents mentioned that their roadmaps were being largely driven, like largely by competitors. And this year it seemed to swing back and it's again more about the customers. So that was like very good to see, from my opinion. Felt like progress. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but what do you think was like, any reasoning behind that? You think, or what was causing that? Well, it's it's really hard to tell. Data is going to vary year over year across samples, even though it, we drew a very similar sample. But there's always going to be some noise in the data, uh, so it, it's entirely hard to tell. But I think that where it belongs is where it landed, and and that's that. You know, the customer is is dictating. Uh, priorities. Um, but I will caveat that. I think that that can become, you know, if you're too beholden to explicit customer feedback, you can become somewhat whipsawed and, and sort of wagged by customers who aren't necessarily thinking about the problem as deeply as you might be or may not have the objectivity to think about it as clearly as perhaps you can or perhaps a whole constellation of customers can. Or your team. Or your team, exactly. I was super excited to see in 2018, you didn't even ask, like it wasn't even one of the options to choose brainstorming or internal suggestions and requests. Right. And those are two options that showed up in 2019. I, I know in one of your articles I read, you mentioned Steve Jobs's disdain for focus groups <laughs> and customer voice as, as a negative thing. But I think he was onto something there and that your customer only experiences, they have one single thread of experiences with you That's and your it. brand product. Right. That's it. Exactly. But your people, your, your marketers that are out talking to lots of customers, hopefully, and your salespeople that are out talking to lots of customers, hopefully, your service people, your delivery people, your, you know, the people that are talking to lots and lots of customers every single day, they know where the skeletons are hidden. They know where your customers might find joy or where they might be frustrated. And if we can figure out, we, we run these workshops, one of the things we do, these one-day workshops that work through a bunch of processes that kind of suck that customer, um, that juice out of their minds to come up with some ideas to really 
um, think about and, and to create empathy for the customer, right? Because if the more empathy you can create, the more care and concern for your customers you can create in the organization, the more powerful your organization becomes. So I was excited to see that show up in the 2019 results. I love how you put that. I, I'm a big believer that I think product management is as much or more about synthesis than it is analysis. And synthesis, there's a lot of art that goes into synthesis. It's about pulling together lots of data streams um, and sources of feedback and inspiration and, and pattern matching, and then adding your own subject matter expertise and your own instinct. And, and that's really where great products come from. It's not from being explicitly driven by customer feedback or um, or explicitly driven, for that matter, by this rare visionary genius that um, is sort of best... Uh, represented by the, you know, the Steve Jobs archetype of someone who can see around corners and better understand a customer need than they can. It's a combination of all these things. And experimentation. For sure. Right. Hey, I got a question for you. So I went back and read a bunch of things that you've wrote in the past. So if I bring up something from uh, one of your past articles and it embarrasses you, I apologize. Oh, no, no, no worries. <laughs> all good. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I, I read an article you wrote that claimed that you're an introvert. So funny that you're in a CMO position yep. on my podcast here. <laughs> yep. Yep. True story. And you also mentioned earlier about what makes a good product owner, good product manager. Um, I'd love yeah. to hear your thoughts. I'd like to give my community access to some of your thoughts on why you think introverts um, could be really good product managers. Cause I thought there was a lot of great insight in that article. Appreciate it. So I'm trying to think back around my arguments. I believe I argued in favor of introverts as the better product managers. And let me give this a shot. First of all, I'll say I'm sort of an extroverted introvert. I don't think that every introvert looks alike. And I think that the way I draw the distinction between introversion and extroversion is where do you find energy? Right. And my energy is is found in quieter moments, more solitary moments. I'm happier probably on average Um reading and writing and thinking and, and that sort of self-reflection. It's not to say that I don't find energy otherwise. It's, it's just, it's more of a continuum. But anyway, uh, as it relates to the product management discipline, I think that those quiet moments, that ability to go deep and to focus and to reflect yields, uh, at least in my personal experience, which is all I have, better insights. Um, because you give time and space to those thorny issues. You're willing to give time and space to those thorny issues to sort them out and make sense of them and go deep and go into the dark places to better understand them. Um, and I'd also add, you know, you mentioned empathy. I think empathy is the cornerstone characteristic of a good product manager. And without it, you're nowhere. And empathy is a willingness and ability and genuine aptitude or instinct to really recognize the pain and problem in your customer's life. And even more than that, to want to solve for it. Great product managers are nearly obsessed with solving for a customer pain and wanting to make their life better in some small way. I love that. I'm a big, as Joe can tell you, I'm a big fan of empathy and empathy training and really understanding what empathy means. I, I've read a, a lot of stuff from Daniel Goleman, social yep. intelligence, emotional intelligence. I love that stuff. I think there's two key scales of empathy, and there's different types of empathy. One is this capacity for caring, and that's the two key attributes of a great product leader, I believe, are the capacity to care and the capacity to influence, which is defined as emotional intelligence. Brilliant. When you can tackle those two scales really, really well, and the other part of great product leadership is not just having the capacity to care and having the capacity to influence, but actually putting them in action and pulling your team up 
getting your developers to care about your customers and the product, getting your QA people to care, getting your marketers to care, right? To care about the people and the users of the product and not just the dollars and the, the revenue that it's going to bring in. And I love that. Yeah. Just putting the right metrics in place around that is, is amazing. Yeah. I think to the extent that you can transfer that empathy across the organization, that's what leads to great companies. I, um, I really, really like that. All right. Watch this transition. So speaking of that, <laughs> the survey actually showed that product managers are becoming more and more tactically focused, meaning they're yeah. in the weeds doing day-to-day things and they're not really focusing on the vision much. But if you're going to be able to communicate to your team and get them to understand the customer and how to empathize with them, you've got to help them with the vision. And you know, who are these users? What does success look like? What are we trying to get done here in the world? Mm-hmm. So isn't it a huge risk for our role in the product management that product managers are spending less and less time on that vision and more on the tactical side? I don't think so. First of all, I think product management requires a blend of both. Um, like most things, there isn't isn't either or. It's uh, and and. But I think that the vision comes from the hard work of the doing, and there's a lot of doing in product management. It can be a bit of a grind. There's a lot of detail that needs to be managed. I think the better product managers that I've worked with are willing to live in that detail and willing to suffer the pain of that detail. Um, and in doing so. They create better products. They create more predictable product delivery. They create more sort of functional relationships with their engineering counterparts. And the vision comes from the knowing. Like when you've been able to live in that detail, because product management is a discipline of synthesis, it's about pattern matching, there are insights that are revealed. And and the vision is sort of the sum of the parts of all that detail. I think the mistake is that when product managers look at this as something that is more like the jobs in archetype, where you just show up and you sort of can see around corners and have this rare instinct without having to dig into that detail, that's what leads to foolish decisions because you're too far removed from the actual doing of the job itself. Uh, So I think it's this weird combination of both where the vision comes from actually being in in the weeds. Yeah, I think that's going to help a lot of people to hear that it's a grind some days. Like it really just getting in there and being in the weeds for a while to get get it done, get the job done. Totally. And you know, you talked about alignment a little bit there. You know, internally here, we've been talking a ton about with our teams, what are the big trends? What are the bigger issues that we're seeing in our jobs here? And the more and more that our product team is working on, it's just aligning so many different stakeholders nowadays and making sure that they're all on the same page, you know, one team, one dream here. Yep. Trying to get the, the product delivered. And we saw that a little bit in the survey too. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the surprising findings perhaps is that product managers saw sales, marketing, UX, design as more important points of alignment than, than engineering. On the surface, that might feel a little alarming, but as you dig into it, it's also revealed that they feel pretty well aligned with engineering. I think they feel like there's more work to be done in some of those other functions. Uh, customer success came up as an area where there might be a bit of a gap. Um, I think that's a really interesting one. In a sense, product management and customer success are becoming kind of like the sales and marketing alignment. Like you need to get that right for the business to function. And that's because in a SaaS-based world, you need to continue to renew loyalty. You need to continue to deliver value and delight. Um, It isn't one and done. And customer success is so close to the customer, so close to the renewal, and the feedback that they get and the early signals that they're able to detect are so important to be brought back into the product management process to ensure that the product is getting better and better in conjunction with 
that sort of signal as it's being revealed. Yeah. So the key measures that we have for our product success are what we call trust, loyalty, and advocacy. And we've actually come up with a way to define specifically what does that mean? What does that customer journey look like? Mm-hmm. And when your customers are behaving as advocates, they do things for you, like they volunteer to be a beta tester, or they will give you constructive feedback on how to make the product better. You bet. They'll basically invest in your future. And that is like, that's the holy grail. When you have an, an ecosystem that's helping you build a better product. Yes. The day, right? yes. You wrote an article, another one from the past on in support of really of NPS. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm more in the Jared Spool camp. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> I think <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think NPS has the place um, for certain types of products and services where you have such a large population of people and you don't have a better way to get access to customer behaviors. But mm-hmm. in our world, we're developing software products. Mm-hmm. So we can, can collect actual human behaviors and yeah. measure those. So why would we interrupt somebody with a survey that really doesn't mean anything except it gives you their sentiment at a point in time? You know, it's not a measurement of how they would actually behave. So anyway, I'd love, love for you to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I feel like I, I continue to offer hedge answers that are essentially that it's all of the above, but I truly feel that NPS is a really important metric, but it in and of itself is insufficient. And um, it's a good measure. It's a solid measure of advocacy, of willingness to advocate on behalf of a brand. You know, that reveals a level of satisfaction. It's imperfect, but it's widely adopted. It's very, very simple. It's one number in one question, rather. And people get it, you know, they, they're familiar with it. So I think the fact that it is simple and standardized counts for something, but it alone doesn't tell you all that much. In the absence of behavioral data, you only know the what, not the why. And that's why, so for example, with Nipendo, we do allow our customers to deliver MPS surveys in product, um, but we also give them deep insight into how users are engaging with that product. And when you combine both of those things, the qualitative and the quantitative, you can start to really derive pretty actionable insights and, and answer questions like, not only how does my user base feel about my product, but why do they feel that way? Uh, which features are driving delight and frustration. So it's really the intersection of both the behavioral analytics for understanding the root cause as well as more qualitative measures of sentiment. And the final thing I'd say on that is that NPS is one of a constellation of qualitative measures that you should look at. One that I particularly like is customer effort score, which is a measure of friction within a product. And it essentially asks to what extent was, and this is a maybe not the most elegantly written question as I'm phrasing it, but to what extent has the product solved the problem that I was seeking to solve? And ultimately, I think that that's a really, really good measure of whether it's been a satisfying experience because it speaks directly to the need and whether the product met that need. So NPS, customer effort score, CSAT, all the above matter. Uh, And then most importantly, pairing that with behavioral analytics to understand the root cause behind the feeling. Cool. I love it. I got one last question for you. And I think Joe has a question and then we'll, we'll wrap up here. But one of the things Jared Spool talks about, independent of NPS, Yep. scary there, um, is about the big bag of money that some customers come along with, right? So you got a product, you got a customer that comes along with a big bag of green money, and they'll take you off vision to build this feature set mm. for this one customer. Yeah. And you guys recently, I just this month or early last month, put out a report called the Feature Adoption Report that I love. Yes. Yeah. You've quantified, you've figured out how to quantify the cost of bloat. <laughs> yep. It's uh, cool. So I just want to give you a chance to talk about that and what you guys found in that report. Yeah, Absolutely. 
So, I mean, what you're saying is right on. Um, a lot of the features, most of the features we've found that companies deliver are just never adopted by end users or they're never adopted or rarely used. And, you know, when you think about it from the perspective of the value of engineering resources, you know, the scarcest talent resource on the planet, and they're spending their time building features that end users just ignore, that doesn't feel so good. So we decided we'd try to quantify that. And because we're measuring feature adoption and measuring product usage, um, we were able to aggregate and anonymize a lot of data to get to a statistically valid and representative sample to understand on average what percentage of features are adopted. We normalized it too to sort of uh, adjust it for the impact that Pendo has on driving feature adoption. And what we derive from this analysis is that about 80% of features are rarely or never used. And when you look at that through the lens of the economic impact of those features, estimating the R&D spend for an average SaaS company of being somewhere in the neighborhood of, I believe, 18 or 21%, you can extrapolate the economic impact of those features that are never adopted or rarely used. And it's a very big number. It's $29.5 billion for SaaS companies worldwide. That's crazy. <laughs> I'm going to use that statistic everywhere, by the way. <laughs> very useful. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, it's gotten a lot of attention. Um, it's kind of an eye-popping number and a, uh, I think kind of an interesting way to put a sharp point on that idea. It's crazy how much waste there is in software. We try to steer people in the right direction. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So last question about the survey here. So if you're going to put your hand to your head, turn on your psychic abilities. So what do you think the 2020 version of the survey is going to show? Oh, wow. Um, so one thing I should mention about 2019 is we saw a pretty low NPS score. It had fallen fairly significantly year over year. And this was the NPS score where we asked respondents whether they would recommend their profession to a friend. By and large, they said no. That wasn't so great to hear, but I think that it's probably some of that dissatisfaction is wrapped up in the frustrations of misalignment, the fact that they have a lot of responsibility and don't always feel empowered, the grind that we've been talking about. I think that, you know, I'm hopeful the next year we're going to see a better NPS score, more satisfaction with the profession. I think that we're going to see more product management teams reporting into CPOs. I think that uh, whereas this last year, marketing was still the dominant reporting line. I think that it's going to tip in favor of CPOs as the dominant reporting line. And I think with that, we'll see more strategic involvement and driving growth for the business. I think we'll see more acknowledgement for contribution. I think we'll see more influence in business decisions. And uh, accordingly, I think we'll see um, happier PMs. That's my prediction. Cool. And I hope we see more and more of the product feature set being driven by behavioral metrics. Oh, yeah. Right. And uh, insights yes. that come from the team. Let me add one more. This is the other prediction I'm look that I'm that I'm hoping comes true next year is one of the findings that we didn't talk about is that product managers more than any other metric measure success on the basis of feature delivery of shipping features. I believe that's the wrong metric. And this ties into the conversation we're having about features that go unadopted. It needs to shift downstream to KPIs associated with adoption, KPIs associated with retention and associated with renewal. So the metrics that matter to the business are the metrics that matter to the PM. And uh, today that's a little out of alignment. Agreed. All right, last question. What book would you recommend to our audience? What's the number one book that you recommend? Oh man. Um, so I, I should 
betray my cynicism about business books. I don't love them. Um, there's a few that I've read over the years that have changed my life and most that have bored me to tears. The ones that have changed my life, I'd say the tipping point, crossing the chasm a hundred years ago, the innovator's dilemma. These are really important books. If you haven't read them, you should. And now, you know, fast forward to today, I read a lot, but I read outside of my domain mostly. I look to other forms of narrative to find inspiration because I think that, frankly, creativity is, or one form of creativity is taking known ideas from one context and applying it to another. Call that idea sex. Yeah, I love that. That's great. That's fantastic. But coming back to business books, the one that I've read in the last, I'd say, year or so that I did love was Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, the founder of Nike. If for nothing else, because A, he's a great writer and a really thoughtful person, but also because he puts so much passion into building a brand and building a great company. Um, and I don't think it fundamentally changed him as a person. That's a good one. We haven't had that one yet. Very cool. I did have somebody recommend that to me recently, so that'll be the next on my list. It's really good. Really good. All right. Is there anything you want to plug for Pendo or uh, anything you got coming up in the near future? I have a couple things. So um, Pendo has an editorial site. We publish daily content. So we have a weekly community poll. We have a point-counterpoint debate that we run weekly. And we publish articles, point of view articles, best practice at productcraft.com. We also have a conference coming up in San Francisco on May 9th. It's called Productcraft the Conference. So we're trying to break the model a bit and create different sort of interesting spaces, more different ways to deliver insight and learning that isn't uh, quite as sort of dry and tired as the traditional conference experience. And if you go to the ProductCraft site, you'll see a way to learn more about that conference. It's uh, May 9th in San Francisco at the Palace of Fine Arts. And where can people get the survey as well if they want to look through it more? ProductCraft or pendo.io. Sounds good. Well, cool. I thought this survey was a great idea. I went through it you know, line by line both years, just seeing what I disagreed with, what I agreed with, and uh, really pumped that you guys are putting it out and hope to see the next version next year. Really appreciate it. Nice, uh, nice talking to you both. Cool. It's really valuable work. It's improving the practice and the craft of product development, and it's certainly been useful for our business. So thank you for your hard work on that stuff. Absolutely. Our pleasure. Um, I think we're passionate about the same thing, so I'm glad we could make a, at least a small contribution. <laughs> well, we've been recording this late on a Friday, and you were talking about energy before. Your energy was great, so thanks for joining us today, Jake. Thanks so much. That's a wrap. All right, so that's it for today. Thanks for listening. And we're not going to just talk to talk. We're going to walk the walk. So we would love if you go into your podcast products and leave us a review. Sean and I guarantee and are committed to reading absolutely every piece of feedback we get there. And not only that, but you're helping other listeners by getting that feedback in there. It helps us move up the search rankings so that other people can find the episodes. So thank you, everyone.